Welcome back to Seaweed Brain, a Percy Jackson podcast. We once asked the question, is Percibeth the greatest love story ever told? Decided, yes, unanimously. And we are now back to discuss Magnus Chase. We've got a great new guest and a great returning guest today to discuss the Sword of the Summer. So stick around, everyone. It's new territory. The Sword of the Summer. Like, this year, the Sword of the Summer is... The Summer is Carly Rae Jepsen's... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. <laughs> he is like the sword of the summer though because he does sing right he sings like top 50 hits yeah that's true he's a pop girly um the sword yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay so hi everyone we actually recorded the first trials of apollo episode last night so i'm all confused but this one will be coming out first so welcome to season three of seaweed brain it is such a joy to be kicking off season three tonight with the sword of the summer um the book of the summer the first magnus chase novel and with a returning guest jackson hey hey did not know this was the season premiere i'm gonna add some extra flavor it's gonna be fun yeah extra energy oh yeah (laughs) and brand new guest a tiktok mutual of erica's it's mike (laughs) hey mike hi guys um i also just want to go really quickly and say that i would think the sword of the summer would be taylor swift because she's a dwarf but wait i think that's in this book i think it is this one i think it is this one (laughs) jackson you want to give us a quick life update yeah it is great to be back on the podcast my roommate ola who is also a fan, a guest, a family member of the podcast, if you will. The listeners know. (laughs) I still get messages about Ola once a week. Listeners, I'm very sorry. I should have known that you know who Ola Bipe Mokomowo is. Uh, She will be making a guest appearance tonight when she gets back from her night out on the town. But uh, I'm doing great. Uh, (laughs) Happy to be back. Thanks, Jackson. Thanks for the update. And Mike, so this is your first time here, um, which means yes. we have to, we must get acquainted with you. What was your intro into the Percy Jackson books? Who are you? Didn't you used to host a podcast? Yeah. So, um, well, as far as Percy Jackson, it was, it was one of those series that like everybody was reading when we were in school. And so like, I would just see like the books on the side of people's desks and I'm like, what's that? But I, I actually picked it up because my librarian at school who i still love her so much because she got me like addicted to pretty much everything i like now um she was like you should try this because at that point i think it was like right when the last olympian had just come out and i've pretty much been like addicted ever since i fun fact actually got into the kane chronicles kind of before i started the heroes of olympus because I saw that he was doing another series and I thought that was a continuation of Percy Jackson. So I started it. And then when I realized it was something totally different, I was like, what? Uh, but it was good. So I, of <laughs> course I didn't, I didn't stop reading it. But yeah, that's pretty much my Percy Jackson origin story. Yeah. As for me, I mean, I just, 
you know, I kind of got a platform on TikTok for talking about Percy Jackson, which yeah, I literally just like, you know, make these videos in my room. Like I don't, it's not like some big thing. So I, I was surprised when that happened, but I'm glad that it happened. And yeah, I'm glad that people like to hear my PJO opinions. So Yay. yeah. <laughs> what is everyone's sort of level of knowledge of Norse mythology? Because I think that's a good thing to acknowledge going into talking about this series that we might all have slightly less knowledge than we do about Greek mythology. I know I have less knowledge of Norse mythology. What about you, Carter? Uh, I'm going to say less than Greek and Roman, but um, moderate. Although Slay. with Norse mythology, it's one of those things where obviously like these books came afterwards, their role in the firmament of America, they're not thrown in your face all the time in the way that Greek and Roman myths are in the like American educational system and literary canon and such. But I've, I've read some, some Norse mythology in my, in my time, and by in my time, I mean mostly as like a second and third grader in elementary school. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> see how it comes back. Yeah. yeah. Jackson and Mike, what about you? To be perfectly honest with you, I'm mostly just familiar with Norse mythology from the MCU. <laughs> fair, yeah, fair. no, I think that that is 100% the so, mainstream adaptation of these I remember stories. watching uh, the Thor movies and thinking it was interesting, but I never like like didn't deep dive into it until Magnus Chase, which is when I kind of, of course, Rick teaches you. So I found out like a bunch of stuff from, from Magnus Chase. Uh, I'd say something pretty similar. I had a, you know, a base knowledge of one or two children's books of like Norse mythology. But what I always like remembered about Norse mythology is that it always felt like Greek and Roman myths, whatever, followed some kind of rule or like they made sense and then norse myths were just like the wildest thing yeah. in the world <laughs> but also i mean it doesn't come up in conversation because you can see like in percy jackson they're like and this is where this word comes from this greek thing and everybody yeah. knows about it and then you look at some of these norse words as they're transcribed into english and you're like i've never seen those three letters next to each other yes. in yeah. any word. So thank God for the the pronunciation guide at the back of this book. Oh my God, it saved my life. <laughs> like, what's the name for like the the soldiers in in Valhalla? Like, they're the... Einher Yar, and an individual one is an Einher Yi. I, I just I right? just said energy for so long. <laughs> I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We talked about this at one point with other people. I think we were like, you know, when you get to that word and if you don't like when the first time you encounter it in a book, if you don't flip to the pronunciation guide right away, yeah. you will never learn how to pronounce it. Every time you get to it, your brain will just be like, yeah. and then you don't we'll always even it. have the wrong thing substitute in there. Sometimes it's just nothing. It's just, okay, I know what this idea is. I visually recognize the meaning of this word, but I'm not <laughs> reading it. Yeah. Yeah. And also in typical demigod fashion, I do have a little bit touch of dyslexia so it's like extra hard for me <laughs> just a little dash yeah just a, a little sprinkle <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna ask this is a tangent but did any of you guys see the northman the alexander skarsgård movie yes i haven't seen it but i want to because i because i kind of have a thing for him so <laughs> Just a little, just a pinch, just a little dash of a yeah. thing. Um, <laughs> I saw it when I was in the middle of reading the trilogy, so it was fun to be like, oh, wow, my Norse mythology is really helping me understand what the heck is going on in this movie. Yeah. Um, but I actually really enjoyed it, and that was kind of my only other major form of consumption of Viking things besides <laughs> how to train your dragon. I mean, everybody, I feel like, knows who, like, Leif Erikson <laughs> is, but not in a... From Spongebob. 
Exactly. Yeah, but that's it. I mean, I think the extent of my Norse slash Scandinavian stuff ends at Leif Erikson and Ikea, you know? Oh, Ikea, that's so true. It's weird, though, because, like, there are a lot of ways in which, like, Norse mythology and Norse cultures are more connected genealogically to specifically English culture, like, the English language culture than Greek things are. Like, there are probably more Nordic-influenced words than there are Greek-influenced words in the English language. And yet, here we are. Hello. Oh my god. Hi, guys. Wow, we have a special guest entering entering the DC room. Hi, Ola. Hi. Hi, Robert. Nice to meet you. I'm Ola. Hi there. Hi, Carter. <laughs> I'm actually Robert, and that's Mike. This is Mike. Hi, Mike. Nice. Hi. I'm on Robert's account, as usual. Carter, long time no see. You look incredibly gorgeous. Everyone looks so good. Erica. I got my nails done. For oh my the gosh, first they time. look gorgeous. And I got some coochie cutters. They glow in the coochie dark. Coochie cutters. <laughs> uh, earlier, Erica asked for an update, and I said that I said, you know, if you know my roommate, she's a friend of the podcast, a family member. And Erica goes, please, okay, everybody knows who Ola is. She's she gets messages about you once a week. I love it to my fans. I love you guys so much. I consider you guys friends at this point. If you're ever in DC, let me know. I'm going to be in New York for all of August in downtown Brooklyn as an update to Carter and Erica. So hang out with me. Well, I'm sorry for just bulldozing in here. No, 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 no. See everyone. Just hurry up and read the books, Ola, so that you can come I know, and sit I have at them our little on table. My phone. I'm going to read them while I'm on vacation. Yay. Okay, cool. I can't wait to see you in August. Bye, guys. Love you. Bye, Ola. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for stopping by. Okay. This is probably a good time to say that we are going to be going book by book, taking one book per episode. That is to say, like, in this episode, we're going to spoil everything in the first Magnus Chase book. You can take that however you want to, in the sense that if you have not read the book yet and don't care about spoilers, you can listen to this and we'll support you. And there will be enough information in this, I think, for us all to have a good time and to think interesting thoughts about media without you having read the book already. That said, I would really recommend that you do read the book first. Read this book. Read just the because book, it's a yeah. very fun book. This is a fun one. It's so good. We recommend it. This feels like the whole idea they tell actors, like, do a movie for you. Like, one movie for a studio, one movie for you. Like, that's how you feel. <laughs> and I feel like Rick wrote the Roman ones because he was like, well, I got to do this. But now it's like, oh, I get to do one for fun. And that's what we're doing. We are doing one for us and one for Rick. Um, as Literally, Magnus Chase is for me and Trials of Apollo is for Rick period <laughs> i look forward to hopefully being a guest on trials of apollo because let me tell you i got some thoughts but that's for a different oh so time. do i guys I think you're please on there. feel free to have me too because <laughs> oh my god everyone has thoughts about trials of apollo except for me i have no, no thoughts head empty. <laughs> <laughs> okay summary carter action we're opening on magnus chase a 16 year old living in boston he's been unhoused since his mother passed away two years earlier in a wolf attack We find out quickly that um, Annabeth and her father are searching the city for Magnus because they are cousins. Magnus overhears him saying that his life is in danger. And he goes to his other uncle Randolph's house in Boston to investigate, even though they have some family beef. His mom and Randolph were not on good terms. Randolph explains to Magnus that he is a Norse demigod and that they have to go and recover a lost sword from a river to deal with an impending challenge that is currently chasing them around the city. We get to the river. Magnus recovers a sword from the river. It's rusty. We don't understand what's going on. But um, 
Immediately afterwards, he gets into a fight with a fire demon named Sert. In the process, they kill each other, kind of. They fall into the river together. Magnus dies. Sert is maybe temporarily vanquished. It's a little unclear. But um, after he dies, and this is for real, he's actually dead, people. Um, he um, is taken to uh, Valhalla, the fallen Asgard for fallen warriors. Odin's warriors who will fight at Ragnarok in his honor. Correct. In this version of the story, Valhalla also is a magical hotel. Sure, why not? Um, <laughs> uh, he's brought there by um, the Valkyrie Samira Al-Abbas, who is a 14-year-old Iraqi-American daughter of Loki. However, once they get there, he is deemed undeserving of entry into Valhalla. But that doesn't mean that he leaves. It means that Samira gets kicked out, basically dishonorably discharged as a Valkyrie as punishment. This leads us into our first mini quest, which is to recover the sword, which we know to be important for reasons that are at this point a little bit still unclear to us. Um, in the process of trying to recover the sword, Magnus uh, meets Annabeth at his own funeral. He talks to a severed head that is a god. He makes a deal with a giant disguised as a pigeon. He fishes for the world serpent using a gigantic cow head as bait. And yes. finally, um, <laughs> bargains with the sea goddess in Boston Harbor for the sword, which it turns out talks. This is the titular sword of the summer, and it has opinions. Um, we've also learned along this quest what the actual like big point of the book is, which is that the fire monster that he fought on the bridge is at some point in the future going to be the owner of the sword, and he is seeking the sword to go and free Fenris. Fenris, the big bad wolf, who is fated to play a large role in Ragnarok on the evil side, and also who, through mercenaries, accomplices, is responsible for Magnus's mom's death. He is, was imprisoned, but wolves that are related to him killed Magnus's mom. So this is personal. To stop all this from happening, we um, have to do some world jumping. So we head over to the Boston Public Garden to get to, oh, fuck. Yggdrasil. Yggdrasil. Right? Yggdrasil. The world tree that connects the nine realms. They're jumping through the tree, and we, we have some realms together. We go to um, Zanaheim, the um, realm of the fairy gods, to meet Freya and get some advice about what we have to do next. Next, we go to um, Svartalfheim, which is the realm of the dwarves, where um, one of Magnus's gay dad's adoptive kind of uh, <laughs> um, goes into a dwarven duel to the death to win a new rope. After this, we have to go to Jotunheim, the realm of the giants. Still don't know where the wolf is. And we're going to find out where the wolf is from Thor, who is out in Jotunheim killing giants, but also making a request that the heroes of our story look for his lost hammer um, in exchange for this information. They don't find it. We're going to circle back to that later on. And by later on, I mean in the next book. Where does that leave us? I think that's all the information we need. We're off to the island where we have an epic battle against Fenris, the wolf, Surt, the fire demon on one side, and then a bunch of Valkyries. Magnus, Samira, his two gay dads. Magnus wins through the power of nonviolence and summer and creativity. Yes. Which and we love gayness. for him. And gayness. However, um, <laughs> a bunch of Valkyries are um, felled in this battle. Is there anything else we have to say? Magnus meets his dad. Oh, okay. After this, Magnus meets his dad. And the gang go to Valhalla and get celebrated in a way that is really, really reminiscent of um, the end of the first Harry Potter book. Like, Odin appears and is like, everybody better give some respect to these heroes. Let me go person 170 by person points to Gryffindor. why they're great. <laughs> 170 points to Gryffindor. Um, and at the very end of the book, Magnus finally agrees to swap stories with Annabeth. 
I think that covers everything, basically. If there's anything else, we'll talk about it. Also, it's definitely Jotunheim, and I know that because I worship Tom Hiddleston. I remember every word that comes out of his mouth, so it is Jotunheim. Oh, yeah, no. Jotun, Jotun <laughs> is okay. the word for giant. Okay. Which I also know from Tom Hiddleston. That makes sense. <laughs> okay, Slay Carter, that was an amazing summary. Thank you for writing all of that out. Quick, quick tangent, because I remembered where also a lot of my Norse mythology came from. Did any of you ever read The Secrets of the Immortal Nicholas Flamel? It was The Alchemist. Okay, Mike, are we about to become best friends? Uh, yeah. that, is my favorite, that is my favorite series of all time. They're so good, but a lot of the characters there are Norse figures. In that book, I think it's uh, Hecate, actually, who works with Yggdrasil, the world tree. There's a lot going on. But I was like, where do I remember this from? It's an unbelievable series. Oh, it's my favorite thing in the world. We love a shout out. You know how somebody brings up like a childhood memory that like you didn't you didn't remember, but when you hear it, you're like, oh my god, I like I deeply remember that now. And it's like this like deep rooted like thing in your brain. That's what just happened to me when he said that. I was like, because oh. I, I, I forgot <laughs> about that series, but now that I remember it, I'm like, oh my god, I remember loving it when I was a kid. Let's go around and share just our initial takes, our initial thoughts on this book. I think everybody can already tell that we all freaking love this book. <laughs> yeah. Mike, do you want to go first? Uh, sure. Uh, so I actually kind of dragged my feet to read this series. And it wasn't necessarily because, I mean, it's, it's obviously it's Rick. I was going to read it eventually. But, you know, I just wasn't, like we said earlier, I wasn't really that familiar with Norse mythology. And so uh, as much as I love, you know, learning more stuff about these mythologies, I... I felt like with Greek mythology and, and Egyptian mythology, I kind of like had a bedrock knowledge, but I just didn't want to be like immersed in a fantasy world and not really know like half of what was going on. But I think that's what's so great about Rick's books is that they're like super accessible. Mm. So like you pick it up and you don't know anything about a certain mythology or culture or whatever, and you can still be sucked in because he really makes it work with like the humor and like all of that. and. Um, and so, yeah, I blew through these as soon as I like finally picked them up and like, you know, really got into it. I blew through these. And I also uh, I knew Annabeth was going to be in it. So that kind of influenced my decision. Because yes. <laughs> Annabeth is like my favorite character ever. A welcome seaweed brain vibe fit <laughs> right in here. <laughs> but yeah, I love I love this book. I think that honestly, it may be Rick's best first book. Uh, because, I mean, mm. The Lightning Thief is iconic, of course, but, I mean, someone, spoiler alert, someone dies in this one, you know? And, and so I, I really, I thought that was like, you know, you don't really see Rick kind of go that dark in the first book. So I thought that was interesting. I really enjoyed it. Literally, Magnus dies about yeah. circa 50 pages in. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I remember reading it's that amazing. chapter and he's like, no, I'm really dead. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Unlike some people who died in Rick's books who aren't really Who don't dead. have the decency to just stay dead. <laughs> cough, cough. More on that next week. Jackson? <laughs> Who's not dead? It's Leo. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> a couple of things. One, I am absolutely here for the Annabeth Chase family standing. Because I also think what's so frustrating is that for all of Percy Jackson... Annabeth is always trying to have to prove herself because, you know, Percy's a, a son of the big three, whatever. But I think having two godly lineages in your family trumps being important to one mythology, <laughs> like one pantheon. Mm -hmm. Like Sally Jackson, she does not have a sister who also has uh, godly children. Like, as far as we know. 
Yeah, we don't know. That's it's also true. Series five, Justin. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I also really enjoyed that this took place in Boston because that is yes. where I'm from. Because most of the time, the thing about me is that I'm terrible with directions. So if anybody tells me where they live, I'll just smile and nod and be like, oh, okay. Well, they'll do it all the time with New York. And so much of Percy Jackson takes place in New York. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. there'll be a joke where it's like, at least we were on the west side of town. And it's like, huh, that's funny, but I don't get it. But now it's like, there's a line where it's like, oh, and you turn left down Beacon Street. And I was like, I've done that. He's I've done that. And I know where Google that is. Maps at some point in this. He's like, we started on, on Charles Street and then we made a turn into the common. And then from the common, we proceeded down to Boylston Avenue. Like, I love it. <laughs> I was like, I've been all those places. I, like every other ch- child raised in Eastern Massachusetts, have pictures on the Make Way for Ducklings ducks because they're iconic. And mm. that was just like so fun. Like that was the gateway to different parts of the Nine Realms. Yes. What's fun about North mythology is that it feels so random at times because it's so unlike anything we've ever known. Whereas yep. with Greek, it's like, of course you have to take it to the 500th floor of the Empire State Building because we're important. And this is like, nah, we stumble upon some ducks because our map is a tree. Yeah. But what's also <laughs> nice is that it feels like there's no hierarchy in Norse mythology because mm. there's such a clear delineage from gods to demigods to satyrs and nymphs and dryads and naiads, whatever. And even on the Roman side, like they are mean to the fawns, you know? Yeah. But here... It's like everyone kind of has beef with everyone. Everyone could die at any time. Yeah, but also, even if you're not a demigod, no godly parentage, and you are a welcome addition to the Hotel Valhalla, mm-hmm. that's really fun. Or, you know, you have yeah. the half troll. And also, I love that Rick turns it on its head because in every other book he's written, the absolute worst thing that can happen to you is dying. The absolute yeah. worst thing. Nah, in Norse mythology, in this world, you got to die first. It's metal. Yeah. It's like, oh, you're still alive? You're still alive? Okay, cute. Call me when you're dead. Yeah, call me when you heroically sacrificed yourself. Uh... <laughs> it's just fun. I love that Magnus dying is like kind of a good thing. Like when he comes back and he's like, he has this like added strength and like all this stuff. You know, sorry, the old Magnus can't come to the phone right now. Like I thought that was great. <laughs> like I love that because you said it's like usually in, in Rick's book's death is like this big bad thing in this book. It ends up helping him in the long run because he ends up being becoming, you know, the the, the thing that we we just talked about that I don't know how to pronounce. Uh, and he just, <laughs> he actually, you know, is benefited by that. So I actually really like that. Yeah. So I love this series. Uh, <laughs> I think that, like, it's just as good as the original Percy Jackson books yeah. with all of the excellent 500 pages a book of Heroes of Olympus. <laughs> It's genius that it's a trilogy and there's so much that happens in each book. It never feels dragged out. This book is so long. It's longer than Blood of Olympus, actually. Yeah. But it goes by so quickly. I love the world building that we get from Norse mythology, like we've been Mm -hmm. talking about, how it's so different from what we're kind of culturally used to as a baseline. I love how gory these books are. Like, I remember texting Carter when I was reading it and being like, oh my God, like, this is violent. Like, we are, we are talking axe to the face, like, every other page. Magnus himself is taking an axe to the face. It is so funny. <laughs> it's part of what makes the book feel a little bit, like, older. Yeah. Who was saying this? I think our former guest, Martha, was talking about this on her Instagram book at Booksmarty, that the series really feels like a bridge from middle grade to YA. I love magnus he is my son he's my son 
I'm going to say this for the rest of <laughs> season three. I have never felt more maternal instinct in my life than when I encountered Magnus Chase. And I was like, that's my son. If I have a child, it's going to be Magnus. I love his crunchy granola lesbian mother. I love that he is a pacifist and isn't a fighter and never really becomes one. The way every time his mom is brought up, they're like, did you know she had a pixie cut? Did you know that she <laughs> constantly was hiking? Like, And she loved flannel and she drove a Subaru. <laughs> <laughs> Carter, what'd you think? My reaction, more of the same. Loved it. Specifically, I was so astonished looking back over the summary at how much stuff happens in this book, and yet how well-paced it is, how coherent it is as a story, how much of an emotional journey we actually get for Magnus, and also for like multiple characters that we actually know things about, care about, have an interest in are pulling their weight, but are also vulnerable in interesting ways. Like, literally, because we are jumping between worlds, we have so much exploration of new spaces and new ways of being and ideas about mm. how to be alive. It's so, it's very invigorating. I, we're going to circle back to some of the other realms later on, but it's delicious. Wow, the dwarf realm writing is incredible. We'll, we'll come back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thank you all for sharing our initial praises and favorite parts of this book. Let's move into talking specifically about Magnus. We are back in first-person narration, which, uh, if we recall, we have not been in for all of the Heroes of Olympus, and it's it's so good to be back. <laughs> the voice sounds a lot like Percy, but to me, even more absolutely over it, because Magnus yeah. has no desire to be a hero and not that percy is like you know wants fame and glory but you know he does in some ways think about hercules as a as a figure to look up to when he's a kid and all this stuff and magnus just does not want any part of this his sword does all of his fighting for him um he literally has no skills yeah. in battle he reminds me a lot of like a combination between percy and annabeth like if percy and annabeth Aww. were put into one character yeah it would be magnus if this were like a clam comic, that would actually be his secret origin story that we find out at the end, that his pixie cut lesbian mom is actually um, Annabeth in like a different timeline or something. Aww. <laughs> Wait, no, that's actually adorable. Like... <laughs> and Percy's actually the god of summer. The, the differences between his narration and Percy's narration specifically like are very well suited to mirror the age differences and also the just differences between Greek and Norse mythology where like Magnus is... <laughs> like angrier the humor is darker he's literally mm -hmm. dead for most of the book and you can tell by yeah. the way that he talks and like the tone of norse mythology is really different one of its defining characteristics is that most of the stories are told in reference to ragnarok the end of all things that everyone knows about and is constantly thinking about and constantly acting with reference to and that that energy is present i think that the deviations make sense but it also like gives rick an opportunity to really be in his bag and give us a voice yeah. that he understands and really feels comfortable. The uh, voice of I'm tired. But also, absolutely, I mean, Percy is, what, 12 when we start The Lightning Thief? Mm-hmm. And we mm -hmm. get Magnus at 16. So, like, yes, yeah. it's at a point where a 12-year-old's point of view on the world is so fundamentally different than a 16-year-old's, let alone a 16-year-old yes. who's been unhoused for two years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I appreciated the more mature tone of the book because you get to jump in. The starting point of this is where Rick was elevating all of his former characters to. Yeah. Yeah. So during one of my many 
Percy Jackson versus Magnus Chase debates on TikTok. <laughs> I've, I've had people say, oh, I just prefer Magnus because I think that he reads more mature. And I'm always like, well, yeah, exactly what Jackson said. Like when Percy started out, he was 12. And so of course he's going to yeah. read a certain way. Now, let me clarify though. I love Magnus. I think he is a great character. I think that he has this kind of like, you know, resigned, like over an energy that I just love. Like you wouldn't think it would be a compelling thing for like a protagonist, but it so is right. because yes. we're so used to our protagonist having this like can-do attitude. Like, yeah, I'm going to save the world. And Magnus is like, you know what, whatever. Let's just do it. Yeah, exactly. Because I think even Percy does kind of have that. Mm -hmm. He's over it, but like not to the degree that Magnus is over it, you know? Yeah, um, and so absolutely. that was really refreshing to read. Uh, and I do love Magnus, but... Percy's always going to be my baby. I'm sorry. I love Percy. That's okay. <laughs> you can have Percy and, and I'll have Magnus. Yeah, Percy is my son and Magnus is your son. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's such a Rick, what a classic Rick move where he was like, I'm going to write a series with Norse mythology. Who's going to be my main character? Should I make him this violent, like bloodthirsty, aggressive, huge, like strong and mighty Viking? Absolutely not. Yeah. I'm going to make him this like skinny kid who looks like Kurt Cobain, has no interest in violence <laughs> whatsoever, yeah. not, you know, quote unquote, what you would think of as a Viking. It's just so smart. And that creates just automatically this amazing, like delicious juxtaposition in this fish out of water story of Magnus entering into the world of yeah. Norse yeah, and myth. It's also, and it's also so yeah. Norse mythology, like the protagonist would be somebody that like, you wouldn't expect to be like that. You know, it wouldn't be just this violent person. It would be the complete opposite. Yeah. There was one more thing I wanted to say about Magnus. I don't think that in most of the Norse myths that people read, there are a lot of demigods, especially as compared to Greek myths. In Rick's other series where he ventures out into other mythology, the Cain Chronicles, you might remember if you've read them that there are no demigods in that. Instead, the relationship that they have to divinity is one of channeling or hosting the divine powers that are these primordial influences that they have like certain relationships with while still like maintaining their identity and having connections that are not really mediated by blood as much as they are mediated by like the choices they make and the affinities they have right i feel like there was a missed opportunity in this book to not do demigods and tell us a different mm -hmm. story about heritage especially given that most of magnus's power up doesn't come from the fact of his parentage it comes from when he dies and gets all these magical superpowers. I feel like I would have really enjoyed the story, if not maybe more, if Magnus is just like raised by two hippie parents, dies, and then has to navigate Valhalla. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's okay. The books are also great as they are. <laughs> yeah. I think to, to kind of hopefully accentuate that point, we get that a little bit with Sam, who is a completely devoted Muslim, who is also a Valkyrie. I think we kind of get it there in a way that we haven't ever seen before, because I don't think, at least in any of the Percy Jackson books, we really get the sense of someone who believes in a god with a capital G. Let's let's transition to Sam. Yeah, I was thinking about you, Jackson, when I first was reading this character, because you were always the person who's like, oh, I wish demigods would have powers that are like unpredictable. And Sam is a child of Loki who is a Valkyrie. She purposefully rejects any of her like power and heritage that comes from Loki. Her power comes from the fact that she's a Valkyrie and can fly and whatever, whatever. So it's very, it's, you know, it's super out of the box. I do feel like to your point, it is it's interesting that the first time, okay, this is actually a little bit of a spoiler. We don't actually get a conversation in this book 
about what the, Sam's actual relationship is to Islamic faith. We see her wearing a headscarf a lot, but in this book, she doesn't say anything about that. We don't actually understand how she reconciles these two belief systems with like the fact that she is like the child of a Norse god and a Valkyrie with the fact that she is doing something that we assume is a form of like religious observance in a different faith tradition that like categorically would not believe like is not compatible with the like Norse pantheon. Yes. I think we get that in the second book, right? Yes, there is a ton of discussion in the second and going into the third book when she is um, observing Ramadan for a large portion of that book. Yes, okay. We don't get all of that explaining from We don't have like a theological discussion. Yeah, until later. In this book, we're just kind of confused about the fact that she has these like conflicting relationships to things that on the surface appear to be mutually exclusive. Yeah, and can certainly read, you know, when you read that character, you can certainly be like, how could this be accurate and appropriate representation when she is also participating in this, like, world of polytheism? You know, even though they're gods with a lowercase g, we don't have that conversation until later. So all this to be said that, you know, Rick did try to create this character, wanted to create a character for people to see themselves in, and also... I think had to do a lot of describing later on that could have been done in this book to make readers feel more at ease. Yeah, but he also jam-packed all of the duality he possibly could into one character who's like, she literally says, I'm taking you to dinner and then I'm going home and I'm doing my calculus homework. Mm -hmm. Because all of the other, all of the other people we see involved in mythology are like, they try sometimes to exist in the mortal world, but it fails and she fully navigates both worlds and has responsibilities in both worlds, which is something that we really don't see mm-hmm. from other people who are like, either they reject it fully or they have to throw themselves entirely in. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We kind of cannot have this conversation without talking about it. Like the discussion that they have about the relationship between these pantheons and like monotheistic faith, in the second book. It is strange to me that we haven't had them before this. Like, surely in the past 10 books, we've met somebody who is Christian. It's America, this country, as you might have discovered by this point, has many Christians in it. They are kind of everywhere. Um, And I'm a little um, unnerved by the fact that we're having this discussion, specifically with a character who is Muslim, because I feel like there is an implication in the way that it's written, especially for people who might not have as much experience with people who are Muslim, that like there is a certain correlation with like a higher religiosity or the idea that like Islam is like something that we should understand categorically different from Christianity in terms of like an ideology and theology and a belief system. The way that they've written it, it seems to be partitioning it off from that in a way that is is a little suspect to me. I'm not going to say that it was the wrong decision. I think the discussion is very interesting. I think that we will go far more in depth on this when we have the book in which this conversation happens. I think the other, you know, big critique of her character is that she is like basically Annabeth um, in so many ways. And I personally don't mind at all. Like, (laughs) aren't we all Annabeth in so many ways? That's actually really interesting. You say people say she's like Annabeth because I've never heard that. Can you like kind of expound on that a little bit? Because yeah. I've seen some people, um, and this is such a, wow, this is such a terrible, like, vague citation of me to be like, I've seen some people online somewhere <laughs> be like, um, <laughs> but like, you know, I've seen some people on Reddit, you know, from like 2016 <laughs> be like, um, Sam is just like a copy paste version of Annabeth because her relationship to Magnus is similar and that she carries all of the weight and knowledge and just kind of drags him around. Mm-hmm. 
and that she is, you know, very tired, overworked, kind of in charge of everything. Isn't that typically the way, though? Like, like women carrying men around and doing everything? <laughs> yeah, that's my POV on it, yes. Yeah, yeah isn't that just reality? <laughs> yeah. Carter, I, I would love for you to speak on this, um, this way in which Rick has sort of compounded upon Frank's heritage uh, oh, through the creation oh, of Sam. Yes. I was about to throw something. It was dangerous. I was holding a tablet in my hand. I was reading an ebook, and I was like, I, you know, can't throw this, obviously, but I really want to. They have this whole passage about how Sam's family is special. They are, like, connected to historical royalty, but it's not just that they're connected to historical royalty. It's the fact that one of Sam's ancestors in the 10th century or something went to Scandinavia. And that is part of why her family is chosen and why she is a demigod. Why? <laughs> Did anyone ask? At least he's not secretly Scandinavian, though. You know, like not in France. Secretly case. Scandinavian, it got a little bit better, but like literally, this information, no one asked for it. With everyone else, we're just like, oh, yeah, like your mortal parent was just a cool person who happened to stumble upon a god at the right place, right time. Why did we need a long ass backstory <laughs> involving? her ancestors being familiar with white people there are lots of very cool people in the world perfectly deserving of interactions with divinity who have never interacted with a white person are not descended from people who have interacted with white people and are not royalty and are not um, uh, aristocracy are not nobles i would like to see that as well in these stories as opposed to just hearing about how somebody once went to europe like a thousand years ago please <laughs> please why this was such an unforced error right exactly i like her i think she's fun i think she's really fun i think that the slight weaknesses she has as a character that don't make her any less fun to read are the fact that sometimes she reads as too perfect to me like she doesn't mm have any obvious have character flaws. flaws or insecurities yeah we feel this right we're like she has like interesting philosophical quandaries that she is working through she mm -hmm. has relationships that trouble her but in terms of like if you were to sit next to her in a coffee shop your experience would be flawless there's like not a single thing you could point to as being incorrect about the way she carries herself in the world right i actually feel that way about all of these characters blitz and hearth also i think that they're all just like good people they're just genuinely good people you know like let's be real the camp half-blood campers are assholes you know they are like <laughs> they all have flaws they're like not the greatest all the time but i think that this friend group this queer friend group they're just great people you know and they're just trying to do their best and ragnarok happens to be coming <laughs> I think that's really true, but I feel like I could also point to things about Blitz and Hearth that are prickly. Hearth is, like, mean sometimes, and I love Hearth for that. I feel like Sam is a little different in this respect, and it is probably because Rick was really afraid of giving literally any character flaws to the one Muslim character that he wrote, and I kind of understand that. I don't know, what are you to do as a white person with a lot of power telling stories there are not a ton of great options, honestly. Most of the good options are other things that he does where he tries to not be a white person taking up all the space, telling all the stories. We just have enough room to like just be mean sometimes, I feel like. Yeah, people, everyone deserves to be a little bit mean sometimes. All that being said, 
if this representation leaves something to be desired for you, stream Miss Marvel on Disney Plus right now, being released weekly on Wednesdays, uh, created by and starring many, many iconic brown women in the industry. It is literally so good. Everybody should watch it. It is so good. I love it. There's like a whole ass scene where they reenact partition. Like, and it looks expensive and it looks emotionally impactful, and it completely makes sense in the storyline. Not just anyone can do that. They're really accomplishing something here. It's amazing. Actually, how about we take a quick break here, um, and when we get back, we will be talking about Blitz, Hearth, Jack the Sword, Annabeth, etc. We are back. Let's talk about everyone's favorite fathers, Blitz and Hearth. We didn't describe them that well in the summary. These are people we meet very early on in the book. When we're introduced to them, they are both unhoused people who are older and have sort of taken care of Magnus in some capacity while he's been out there. We find out very quickly that they are, in fact, not humans. Blitz is a dwarf and Hearth is an elf. And they are working for a god to try to take care of Magnus giving sort of like protector stator energy, but um, not exactly because they're quite competent at different things. I think that's enough plot backstory on them, right? Is there anything else we need to say? Well, they're sort of, I mean, in addition to being a dwarf and an elf, Hearth is learning how to practice rune magic using rune stones and Blitzen has fashion magic in yes. which he, um, as a dwarf, makes things. And for him, he makes clothes and fashion styles that tend to be having magical elements or have special magical yeah. powers. And he's always there to, like, craft a way to save the day. Oh, he's so gay. I love it. <laughs> that is the <laughs> gayest magical power that has ever existed in the Reardonverse. No, yeah. I said yeah. Reardon. <laughs> we should clarify that for both of them as well. Like These are not powers that are just representative of their respective species. They are, in fact, not represented by anyone else in their respective species like hearth is the only person or the only being rather that knows how to do rune magic that is like not a god and blitz is shunned by dwarven society for not making basically hyper masculine objects like he is supposed to be making mugs and chairs and weapons right but doesn't doesn't he make like bulletproof squares functional magical fashion um the definition of slay if you will but also slay in a way where he is not respected by anyone they're both like outcasts from their respective societies which is part of the reason why they're here and very important to understanding their characters i think that's so true because i think that all characters in the riot adverse are in some way outsiders because that's a crucial component of rick's storytelling but to be a dwarf and an elf literally shunned from their worlds like their entire world has shunned mm-hmm. them. I think that just really amplifies the queerness of their characters yeah. and how we read into that. And that's why I love, you know, the description of them as like two Magnus's two gay dads, because I think that like, it was so like familiar. It reminded me so much of like stuff that I've been through, you know, like, mm-hmm. like being shunned or like not having the support of the people that should support you, the people that are like you. I don't know if Rick intentionally had that like allegory compared to like the queer experience, but yeah, I thought that was representation right there. Honestly, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It's giving Timon and Pumbaa, or alternatively, Pleakley and Jamba, Pleakley and Jamba, also known as uh, <laughs> Carter and Erica. <laughs> 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 uh, that's a joke for me. I constantly see TikToks that are like what fictional characters could win Drag Race, and the number one every time Absolutely. is Pleakley. It's 100% true. 
We should also mention that we don't know that much in this book about Hearth's backstory and his experience in his upbringing at home um, in the elf world. But part of the reason why he is kind of rejected from his family is because of the fact that he is deaf and he communicates through sign language. And so a lot of this book, it'll be in italics to communicate what is being signed. Obviously not deaf, so I can't fully comment on this, but I do just want to say that I had never read a book. This I think I think Hearth was the first character, the first deaf character that I had ever read about, which just goes to show how little representation the deaf community gets. And mm-hmm. that's something that's really changed. I think Hearth and like the girl from A Quiet Place, so like the only two I can think of. And that's like not a thing. You know, that's not that's not okay. So I really appreciated that. You know, and of course like I said I'm not deaf, so I can't fully speak on it, but in general I just love Hearth as a character. Like I think he kind of almost reminded me of like a, a meaner Grover a little bit because he had this like <laughs> you know how Grover has this like like you just want to give him a hug energy, but Hearthstone yeah. had that but like in, in like a more of a bitter way. And I just thought he was really cool. Yeah. I, I love Hearth. Hearth is my favorite. He's so delightfully, like, jagged and kind of mean sometimes. Um, Very good at hiding his emotions, which we'll find out more about. Yeah. But I, I also love that there's never an attempt to try and fix him. Like, yes. there's no magical way of, oh, maybe you can use your runes to Exa- speak. Or, yes. It's like, no, no, no. We, we learn sign language because that's so much easier and also the absolute best thing to do because you're not broken we just need an alternate way to communicate with you and it's on us to figure yeah. it out mm-hmm. i was gonna ask if any of you guys had seen sound of metal from a the riz ahmed film Sorry. yeah the riz ahmed film that film taught me a lot i mean riz ahmed is not deaf so that was you know a question of representation on you know, the casting there, but that movie taught me so much about perceiving that kind of difference in ability, not as something to be fixed, just as part of who you are. Obviously, we can all stream Coda. We're going to drop some readings in the notes. I I, I like taking a class for which we've, we've just done a lot of very good readings that I would like to share with the people. Rick is obviously somebody who has done some critical thinking about uh, disability and the way that it ought to be understood. Famously, the Percy Jackson series was born as a way for him to tell stories about ADHD and dyslexia and to reframe biologically determinative narratives about the way that these disabilities ought to be understood. Yeah. I feel like this really does take it to the next level, though, in terms of, like, specifically, so often disability is used as a metaphor, particularly in fantasy. Yes. I think that the way that ADHD and dyslexia are written is like very rich and interesting and useful in the original books, but I think it is also possible for some people to not understand, I think, all of the thought and all the intention that he put into it and think of it as this like metaphor and think of like ADHD and dyslexia as like the fact of them being useful in battle as being a fact of like a fantasy world and not a fact of like actual life that like you can understand Mm. these biological differences as having different social meanings and different social contexts right whereas like in this book i think they really really hone in on this like the deafness they're not trying to solve with magic and also it's not a metaphor for anything it's just like a fact of this Mm -hmm. person's life that people are dealing with by like appropriately modifying the social context in which this person lives and the reasons why it's hard for this person at time is just because of different social contexts that are non-adaptive and are like discriminatory right I felt very warmed by this character a great deal. 
We fucking love Hearth. Oh my god. Oh my god. god, We We love love Hearth. If I was 11 when I was first reading this, I would have been in love with Hearthstone. There's also this moment that we have not mentioned where they are um, climbing the tree, like the world tree, and basically Magnus tries to heal Hearth and he's like, no, there's too much pain. There's so much darkness. I don't even, I can't even begin with that. And in that moment, I was like, yes, yes. We love, love you. you. <laughs> I just want to hug him. You're so right. I yeah. just want to hug him. I don't think I've ever just wanted to hug one of Rick's characters more than I just want to hug Hearth. Like he's just so adorable. I love him. He so probably much. gives amazing <laughs> hugs. Isn't he like very? He's very tall, right? Because he's an elf. Yeah. <laughs> There's this moment where like they're they're all interacting with Thor, and the joke is that Thor is stupid. And that's the entire joke. Like, Hearth the whole time is, like, tearing him a new asshole on the side. Like, yes. constantly <laughs> ridiculing him, saying, like, how he's dumb and uncultured and ungainly. And Thor is yes. nodding along being like, yes, yes, it is so good to be appreciated. <laughs> There's a moment, I think, in the second book, or maybe it's the third. Oh, I think it's Ship of the Dead, where also they're, like, trying to, like, shade somebody who they're with through sign language and then they remember that that person that like god also speaks also communicates <laughs> through sign language and so hearth is like starts to say something and then can't <laughs> i love the shade hearth is so shady should we pivot to jack the sword yeah rounding up the friend group here we've got the titular the sword of the summer who uh, chooses his own name as jack this is not, it's not a huge thing, but a little bit of a spoiler for the Trials of Apollo as well. I feel like Rick has, you know, this thing, um, like the, the, the sassy weapon, right? Like he has here with Jack and then he has the arrow of Dodona in, in, in Trials of Apollo. Mm. I liked this so much more. Like that felt like it was trying too hard, which kind of is how I feel about that series as a whole. Oh, oh, but, oh hot take. Oh, it's fiery. Uh, but yeah, I just think that like Jack's jokes were actually funny. They landed like he, he was mean, but he wasn't like he wasn't like mean spirited. He was just like, you know, like he was funny mean, you know, it was, it was great. So I, I really. Loved it. Yeah. Jack has a perspective. Jack is so funny. And also. The sword and Magnus have a relationship that is first and foremost built on consent because Jack is like, all of the work that I'm about to do, you will then feel the brunt of if I do it when you hold me again, are we good to go? Which is, by the way, consent is sexy. It is necessary. And they've got such a good relationship because of it. They've got such strong communication. And I think that that is a really, really nice part that is woven into the yeah. story that was so simple. And also, who fashions Jack into a necklace? Like, how does that come about oh, again? Does remember Jack how it just change forms? Or... Yeah. Because he becomes it's a little rude. It's a little F thing. Where is the merch? Where is the merch? <laughs> Where? I went in search of it. Yourself. Just like draw an F on like a little brown tile. And where is it? I'm talking an Etsy shop. I'm talking gold plated rune of Frey necklace. Uh, The only thing I'm seeing is an Etsy shirt that says blades before babes. (laughs) Which I think is what Jack says to Max. I also just want to say too about Jack doing all the work and Magnus feeling the brunt of it. I think that was a great way to raise the stakes because like, yes, you know, with Percy, with Riptide, I mean, Percy just, you know, learns how to fight. And so he, 
he feels the brunt of it, but he's also doing all the work, you know? So it's like, it's okay. Um, but Magnus is like, oh, this is awesome. I get to just stand here and Jack gets to cut everybody down. But like, no, you have to feel the exertion of you doing that. And I think, you know, it's actually kind of scary almost. Like, wasn't there that one scene where like he almost passed out because he was like really tired and- Yeah, feeling consequences. I loved that. That was another kind of more adult aspect to this. It's also a great storytelling device because whenever Rick wants to throw Magnus into a bunch of dream visions, he just has to grab the sword and go to pass out, mm-hmm, you yeah. know? It's like, all right, it's time for a visit with Loki and grab the sword, you know? <laughs> it works really well. Yeah. But what I like about it too is that it there's no sort of cop-out situation like you have uh, with Frank in Rome where he's like, I was blinded by rage. And I and killed I all just, the dogs you know, in Venice. <laughs> and I killed all of these like <laughs> mythical cattle beasts in Venice. But no, Magnus has to be calculating about what he wants to have happen. And there's no copping out of like, oh, I, was, uh, I just was lost in the heat of the battle. It's like, no, you have to watch what's happening. And this, you and the sword have to be on the same page. It makes me think of uh, Game of Thrones the line where Ned Stark says, whoever sentences someone to death should be the one to kill them. Like you can't hide behind an executioner. There's honor in that. And I think that you have to be conscientious of what you're doing in battle, which is also such a fun juxtaposition to the literal bloodbath sport that is people just killing for killing. In Valhalla. For practice. In Hotel Valhalla. Yoga to the death, uh, bowling to the death, <laughs> pottery to the death, dinner to the death. That was so funny. Oh my God, I love that. Everything's so funny. Jack kind of flying around, you know, the way it was described in the book, it kind of reminded me uh, of that scene at the beginning of Thor Ragnarok where like Mjolnir's, like Thor lets Mjolnir go and they're just like fighting uh, Circa yeah. together. Can I just say on record, I would love, it probably wouldn't happen for a while, but I would love to see an adaptation of Magnus Chase. I think it would be so cool. And Taika Waititi can direct it. Absolutely. Uh. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think what I also like about just the way that the books are set up is that with the Greek books, it's all set up by a prophecy, the great prophecy or whatever prophecy is going to happen next, because only the fates know what happens next. And here, we don't know what happens next. We just know what happens last. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's kind of a really freeing thing to be like, cool, you're going to go, you're going to fuck shit up and it's going to happen. But guess what? Nothing changes the fact that Ragnarok is there and Ragnarok is the exclamation point that ends this sentence. We just know how it's going to end, but we have no idea how we're going to get there. And I think that that is a much kind of more fun yeah. way yeah. You're not playing detective. You're not trying to figure out, oh, what does this little rhyming line mean Mm -hmm. here? Seven half-bloods shall answer the call, whatever. But this is kind of like, no, world's going to end. How do we get there? What's going to happen? And you have all this freedom to explore the journey, which I think is something that we don't necessarily get all the time in the Heroes of Olympus and Percy Jackson. It's giving Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Shout out to another iconic pair (laughs) of gay dads. (laughs) <laughs> uh, to your point, uh, Jackson, about the prophecies, I agree. I think it was really cool to like not have any clue what was going to happen. I mean, and and to be fair, I liked figuring out what this line meant and what you know who was going to answer the call. I predicted the world will fall being Gaia like three books before Piper did. I was like, like figure that out the second they said the prophecy. Period. <laughs> so I, I loved doing that, but there was also something really cool about the randomness, and I think it goes along with. Norse mythology too, because like a lot of stuff just kind of happens. 
And so it was yeah. really cool to like have the characters be like, I don't know, you know, what we're gonna do. I don't know how we're gonna find Loki. I don't know where we're gonna. That was cool. And it was different. I should totally rephrase. I also really enjoyed doing all that. I'm just really happy that he didn't do it again. Yeah. Like another series sure. based on prophecies would have been like, okay, great. Here, like we we know this formula, and I love that he totally shook it up because I was also like. What does it mean to storm or fire? The world must fall. I always just forgot them. And when they came back in the end, I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I remembered every word. I was like, no, this, this means to end with death. And then I, I was That's like, good. Aren't you a writer, Mike? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, of yeah. course, I, I had to remember every word. Yeah. And structuring the story. Yeah. Annabeth time? I think it's Annabeth time. Oh, my girl is back. Annabeth. Big sister Annabeth is here. There are three moments we can talk about. She appears in this book exactly three times, but each time. <laughs> wow. What a moment. Iconic. She's so beautiful. Before I started the series, I thought that, you know, Magnus being related to Annabeth was just like loose connective tissue. I didn't know she was actually going to be in it. Um, and so mm -hmm. when I started the book and she showed up, I was like, wait, we're going to see her? <laughs> You know, even though we don't see much of her, she did have, like, big sister vibes. Like, she seemed very mature, like, you know, more mature than usual. Yeah. Because of the way that she tries to get Magnus to open up to her. Her really trying to reach out to him and be like, hey, I, I, know, I know a thing or two about what it's like to, you know, kind of have some weird stuff going on in your life. If you want to talk to me, I'm here. Um, and then finally, you know, at the end of the book, he relents and they get to have that, that moment of, of mentorship of family. Yeah. That moment is really, there are many moments of queer excellence in an intergenerational, lovely way. That moment, I feel like that's one that I like recognize a lot from life is someone being like, Hey, I really think that I might know something about what you're going through. Yeah. None of us are going to say what it is. Oh. And I really felt for her as she was going through that exercise yeah, and also for um, Magnus being like, oh no, I can't burden her with all of this. Like, you know, yeah, <laughs> it's very lovely. We stand Annabeth Chase in this house. Shout out to Reyna and Nico. You would have loved this one. <laughs> you would have seen Magnus coming a mile away. <laughs> would Nico leave Will for Magnus? Debate. <gasps> well, here's the thing. They're so similar. They're and so by that, similar. I mean they're blonde. And they have healing powers. Um. <laughs> I'm gonna go no. I don't think it's a dispositional map. I think that they are almost each other's types. But like I, Magnus and Nico are too similar. Uh, yeah, okay. Nico would definitely have a crush on Magnus. I don't think that Magnus would date Nico. I think Magnus would have thoughts, and I think that's where I'm gonna leave it on that. You know, they'd be friends. I think Magnus would like, I, you know how people look at Nico and they're like, oh, he's the son of Hades. He's so intimidating. I think Magnus would be like, wow, nice outfit there. Dead person? Son of Hades? Yeah, you're the son of Hades. I'm yeah. dead. So. <laughs> this, okay, this also leads to my other question, which is, do you think Rick is setting up an Infinity War type thing oh my god okay so i have a whole conspiracy theory about this mike oh my god he's got he's got four pantheons right now you think they're gonna fight i literally made a tiktok about this a month ago and i swear to god if it happens 
I want a thank you page in the book. I want to thank. I said, <laughs> what if he does a scenario where all the mythologies come together and they they have to face down like some big like threat that's like common through all the mythologies? Which I said, global warming. warming. <laughs> Christian Jinx Jinx. <laughs> oh my god! I think they should fight Jesus. Oh my god! But if it's Jesus, no shade, but Percy Jackson would like to floor with Jesus. Sorry. Oh my god! Are you kidding me? Didn't they, have, didn't they make a whole joke that Thor challenged Jesus to a duel and Jesus didn't show up? Yes. Can we just really quickly talk about TJ because I think he's my favorite character in the whole series. I love TJ so much. We haven't even mentioned TJ Halfborn Gunderson and Mallory Keane. We should talk about him. Yes. Yeah. There are a whole bunch of warriors in Asgard who are on the same floor who are also kind of a bunch of misfits within Valhalla because one of them is like half troll and one of them is a woman and one of them is, is not white. One of them is Merida <laughs> from Pixar's Brave. So true. One of them is also Odin, we find out, because of course he is. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I actually love that TJ was a Union soldier because... As was mentioned earlier, I'm a writer and uh, I'm working on my book right now, which takes place during the Civil War. And so I had to do a lot of research about it. And like, we are not taught so much stuff in school. Like, I did not know there was a whole like regiment of Black soldiers. And so seeing that for TJ is just like, again, some more like history that like, you know, we really should know, but don't. Um, you know, the fact that, like, he fought and the fact that, you know, there was a whole class of free Black people who weren't slaves who, like, participated in the war and who had, like, a, a stake in it. And there's actually a lot of, uh, you know, slave labor in the, in the war. There's actually a lot of, you know, Black people who were chefs and, and, and nurses and stuff like that. And it's just, like, you think of the Civil War as just this, like, a bunch of white people fighting over slavery. But, like, you know... Black people were involved in it and, and like, really, like, had a, a say in, like, a lot of the battles and turned the tide in it. And so kind of why I love TJ, because I feel like he speaks to that. And he has, you know, he, he's, he's like, a way of, like, Rick's younger audience finding out about, you know, the Black soldiers that fought in the Civil War. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Was there anything else anyone wanted to say about Thomas Jefferson Jr.? Well... Not about TJ specifically, but uh, about like the whole group. Um, some I don't remember who it was. One of you said that Mallory is basically Merida from <laughs> Jackson, and she is. But like, I wasn't mad at it because I love Merida. That was not meant as an insult. <laughs> it was meant as an observation. <laughs> also, Mike, you should know that whenever I'm a guest on the podcast, if there is ever anything that was not related or unhinged, I am the one who said it because. The first three times I was a guest on this podcast, I did not know the outlines existed. And so then, like, Ola and Erica and Carter be having these deep conversations. I'd be like, you guys got, like, a script for this? Ola's like, did you not read the outlines? Jackson, wasn't it you who didn't know that there were also, like, two more books in the original series and you thought it was a trilogy? don't come for me. I did think that the original Percy Jackson series was a trilogy. So when the Battle of the Labyrinth came out, I was gooped and gagged, and I was not prepared for it because I thought Titan's Curse was where it ended. Wait, so you thought Titan's Curse was the ending? You thought that was how this Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I really just thought it was a trilogy. And then I think when I got to the end of the book and it said, 
like, here's a little preview of the Battle of the... Oh, no, because... No, 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 we didn't get previews anymore, but it was just like, look out for the next book. And I was like, what? I was very confused. You can check out the damn meme page because they made a meme about me. Oh, Look at that, shouting at the damn meme page. They made like one meme about me and they have like 15 about Ola. Everybody loves Ola. You, you mentioned the preview. Speaking of that, I really miss the preview era. That was iconic. Like when you got the little snippet of the next book. Can you imagine if the Tower of Nero hardcover came out with a section of the Nico Will book at the uh, very end? Oh my god. I would buy it and then rip it out and then throw out the Tower of Nero. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of the multiverse, uh, the Reardon verse of madness, I would love to see Magnus Chase show up in the Nico and Will book. Oh, period. I yeah. don't know how. I don't know why. I just want to see Magnus and Alex interact with Nico and Will. I just want everyone to be friends and get along at Percy and Annabeth's wedding, okay? <gasps> because you have that wedding, and then Magnus is there, and then you also invite. Sadie and Carter because they fought in that sewer to get that crown from that crocodile <laughs> or whatever that magicians and demigods was. <laughs> and then everyone's friends. I don't know if that's a wedding invitation level connection, but like, I guess we'll make it happen. Yeah. You wouldn't invite someone you fought a crazy, creepy monster in a sewer with? I have a Persebeth hot take since we mentioned them getting married to end the episode on. And that is that I don't think that Persebeth will ever get married. That's pretty fiery, but I'm there with you because one of them dies tragically in a, in a quest? I think they're against the institution of marriage. <laughs> I think that they are anti the institution of marriage. I'm sure we've said that before. I just cannot picture Annabeth being like, yeah, we're going to get married. You know and what? Percy being like, yeah. I don't necessarily think they're going to get married, but I do think they're going to have kids. Oh, sure. They will have kids. They might even have like a commitment ceremony. They will have a common law marriage. I think they would get married and Annabeth would weave her own wedding dress. Or mm-hmm. it would be a gift from her mother. Hmm. I think they would get married because I hate, you know me, okay? I hate straight relationships and I really don't (laughs) like them. But then I was like, when Percy and Annabeth are walking through, uh, what is the Greek pit called? Tartarus. Thank you. (laughs) What is the Greek pit called? (laughs) I've got Ninganap stuck in my head now from the Norse Fair. That's super fair. Um, There's a lot of words. Tartarus. Thank you. But when they're walking together with the death mist, I was like, oh, they love each other, okay? And they're fine. They can be friends and love each other. That's very generous. Thank you, Carter. Yes, I, <laughs> in all of my gayness, will allow this one. And I like Frank and Hazel. Frank and Hazel. I love Frank and Hazel. Oh my God, I'm sorry. I love them so much. But let me tell you, guess who was doomed from the start? Piper and Jason, because that is not real. Not real. Everybody hates it. It was bad. Piper has always been a lesbian. It was just compat. Period. I just want you both to know that I still respect both of you, even though you ship Frazel. Do you not <laughs> ship Frazel? How do you not ship Frazel? Look at this Frazel? moment of unity. Toleration of difference. We don't have enough time in the world. Yeah. But look at us. Look at us all here together on the same on the wow. same call, enjoying each other's company despite some of us being anti Frazel and some of us being pro Frazel. Look at that. Okay, let me just also say really quickly that I know who I don't want to see in the Nico and Will book, and it's Percy and Annabeth. I want Rick to leave them alone. I don't want them going to Tartarus. I don't want them going back to get Bob. No, like, they need to stay at home, okay? Can Will and Nico go get Bob, though? Yeah. Sure. Nico can go get Bob, for sure. Can they get Annabeth's laptop? (laughs) 
Oh my god. And can they can they also while they're down there, can they find Percy and Annabeth's gray streaks that mysteriously disappeared? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well. Okay, so I feel like we should go out with us all giving a hot take then. And mine is that it's not so much a hot take as it's just me kind of being annoyed with this whole conversation. And that's that anyone who has a problem with Leah's casting in the show, Annabeth has always been black, so you can fight me. Say it again. Actually, say less. You don't have to say it again. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I just really want people to be this concerned about hair and eye color when they cast white people who are not. Like, if they... I, I want people to be this concerned about Walker being blonde. I really do. And that's all I'm going to say. I'm Some frankly can. incredibly concerned about Walker being blonde. I cannot lie. But I'll move past <laughs> that. <laughs> Have you not seen people on Twitter being like, oh my god, his roots. His roots are looking brown. Are you seeing his roots looking brown? Perhaps they're dyeing his hair? Perhaps? Perhaps? And I was like, yeah, because people dye their roots first before they dye the rest of their hair black. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I am more concerned not concerned in a bad way, but concerned about how literally the structure of the series is going to change if Percy is the only white camper at Camp Half-Blood. And literally all other main characters and antagonists are not white, especially Luke. I am going to have a very, very hard time siding with Percy in this series if Percy is the only blonde person. You were right. And Luke is trying to organize a coup against the gods. I'm literally like, it's going to be hopeless. I'm going to be like, yes, Kronos should rise. They have to make Kronos white to balance it out. That's a good point. I mean, Kronos needs to be white. Zeus needs to be white. I feel like we've said this on the air before. We'll say it again. Luke, you're right. The juxtaposition of of a non-white Luke and a white Percy is a choice. I really would like to see them stick this landing. Yeah, it's going to be hard to land Luke being wrong. Frankly, I just don't know how I mean, it's going to work. But I'm <laughs> Even to with it. White Luke, it was kind of hard. Like, Especially in Heroes of Olympus, when you go back and you see like, exactly. when Percy can kind of sympathize with him. like Because he's not wrong. It's just the way he goes about it. Well, you know, you know how they can do it? You know how they can make us not like Luke by playing up that he has feelings for Annabeth? That's how they can do it. Yeah, that's a good Why point. are you giving away this information for free? They got to give you a producer credit. <laughs> well... On that series of extremely hot takes from everyone, um, <laughs> it's time to wrap up the Sword of the Summer. Um, I'm sure there are things that we missed. We'll try to address anything that we missed in the next episode that we are discussing Magnus Chase. Next time you see us, though, we will be talking about the first Trials of Hollow book. Uh, special thank you to Jackson and Mike for joining us tonight to talk about this amazing book. We appreciate you being here. Yeah, of course. This is so much fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we can't wait to see both of you guys back and we'll link uh social media handles projects all the cool things that mike and jackson are up to in our show notes so you can find them yeah i'm so gonna promote the hell out of this on tiktok yes (laughs) all right guys we'll see you next time have a good one bye all bye bye